0: And so uh, we're continuing in First Timothy. And in First Timothy, uh, chapter five is the family chapter. Uh, so we looked at the mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers of the family in verses one through two. Uh, we looked at those who need care uh, and the widows in our last two messages. Uh, so we're continuing this theme of concern for the household of faith as a family. Uh, we went from the ones who are most visibly in need in the widows and those who lack provision. Um, but likewise, those who have the greatest responsibility in the church should be honored and supported as well. And so we have to read this text, uh, continuing on what we looked at before. So this morning, this sermon's going to be uh, kind of a look behind the curtain, if you will, into pastoral ministry. So we're going to peel back beyond what most people normally look at when they attend. I think this will be really helpful for members, for those of you who are considering membership, Uh, for those of you who maybe have been attending church for a while and never really thought about uh, why are there pastors and uh, what goes into the structure of the church and uh, how does this church function. And I think this is something uh, that is not taught on often enough. It is sad how many people have been attending churches for years and have never heard a sermon on what exactly the pastor and elders do and how they, they function and how they relate to one another. Because after doctrine, this is the most important question you should ask when selecting a church. When considering whether I want to be a, a, a member of this church, whether I'm going to attend here and serve here and give here, is what does the leadership, the authority, the accountability, the structure look like? How does it function? So... Uh, today's sermon is going to be a little more inside baseball than most sermons would be. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the term, um, so most people, when they attend a baseball game, they just sit there, they get their nachos, their uh, popcorn, and they just watch what's happening on in the field. But the inside baseball, kind of like the, the, the analysts who've never picked up a bat in their lives, uh, know everything about the game, they're, they're, they're analyzing what's going on in the organization, they're analyzing the scouting and the, you know, the, um, the salary cap and all these other things, because what happens in the organization, what happens how well or how poorly an organization is ran directly affects what happens on the field. It is not very different in a church. Um, Every week it seems like we are hearing about or I am talking to someone who's going through a difficult church situation. There is some kind of pastoral moral failing, there's a split within the church, there's dysfunction, there's there's disunity, um, and if I were to ask a show of hands, and I'm not gonna, but how many of you have been through a difficult church season where your pastor was shamed because of moral infidelity or because of poor decision-making or there was infighting among the leaders or there was a, a a church split or something of that nature if you've been in the church long enough you have been and if you haven't praise God because you're in the minority so this is vitally important and I think most people attend church they sit down, they kind of observe how are people dressed, what are their conversations like, what's fellowship before and after. Did they play too many songs? Did they not have enough songs? Did the, the, did the preacher speak to my liking? Did he talk too long, not, not long enough? You're, you're, you're monitoring all these things. But very few people ask, well, how is your church structured? Who makes decisions? Who is tasked with leading, ruling? How, how do these things get, get done? I think most members don't ask these questions. And I'd say for most of our members probably don't ask these questions, but we give them if you go through our membership class. So this is very much gonna be a preview of our membership class. We talk a lot of inside baseball in our membership class because we want you to know who you are covenanting with. We want you to know how we come to decisions. And we, as elders, desire that our members be informed. And so we communicate things to our members often. And so hopefully this uh, treatment of this text, that's why I decided to lean into just two verses this morning. Um, I think it to be helpful for you to know our structure, our distinctives, um, but really uh, what things contribute to a healthy church in general, uh, according to the Apostle Paul. Uh, but we're just going to scratch the surface. Uh, there are a million more questions and a million more positions that we cannot deal with, but I am going to deal with. Uh, what's in our text, and I think what's most helpful for us in a reasonable amount of time. So in your Bibles, First Timothy chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 17, I'm going to read just 17 and 18. Paul says to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Many in this room are tired and exhausted, maybe been put through a difficult week. Many come uh, hoping. To be built up by your word and I just pray that your word would encourage us, would challenge us, would convict us. Those who are doing well, those who are happy to be here this morning, I hope everyone's happy to be here this morning. Uh, Lord, may you increase our joy in Christ. May you see these things that can sound tedious. Like talking about elders and I'll never be an elder so this doesn't matter to me. May you see that you instituted these things, Lord, for the good of your body for the building up of your saints, for the unity of the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Lord, may your people in this church and in all of your faithful churches hold to your word. May we hold it highly and submit ourselves to it. May we take our time and pour our hearts and our lives over your word to make sure that we are living according to it, that we might not Not just that we might not sin against you, but that we might live in a way that pleases you and glorifies you. So, Lord, I ask that your spirit go before me this morning. May you open the eyes of the blind. May you prick the ears of the saints. May they hear the voice of their shepherd. May I, as a lowly under shepherd, get out of the way that Christ may be glorified in everything that is said, prayed, spoken, sung, and discussed this morning. And in his name we pray, amen. So verse 17 begins with the word let. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. Paul is giving Timothy another command. We've talked about this throughout the letter. These orders coming from a superior. So that Timothy, as a local elder, doesn't just, doesn't just come to his congregation and say, hey, just so you know, um, I'm supposed to get a paycheck. No, this is an, an apostolic command. This is not only something that is, that is unique to Timothy, but this is consistent throughout the scriptures, uh, hence verse 18. So, when Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered of a double honor, uh, we should recap a little bit. Uh, so as we've said before, the term elder is an umbrella term. Uh, And it is referring back to the office that we saw in chapter 3, the overseer. So the elder is the older one, the overseer is the one who manages and looks over, and the shepherd is the one who cares for the flock. But let's go back to chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, this is a designation within the local church, he desires a noble task. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. If that is your elder, he is ruling well. And he he is worthy of double honor. Uh, So to kind of bring these ideas together, we looked at Acts 20 quite a bit. I just want to look at Acts 20, verse 28 where Paul brings all three of these ideas together. Acts 20:28. 20, it'll be on the screen, or you can, get there. you can get there in your Bibles quickly. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. At the beginning of this section, he calls all the elders, and he's speaking to them directly. Pay careful attention to yourselves of all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So right away, you've got the elders, the older men in the congregation, who God has made overseers, those who are in charge, who rule over the flock which makes them shepherds. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We can't go any further until we understand that. It is not an empty office. This is not some formality where if you're the oldest guy in the room or the most successful guy in the room, we give you a title so that you can validate your importance. This is the church of Christ through which he purchased with his blood. This is his sheep. And those who rule over them should be very careful because it is to him that they will give an account. It is his sheep that they shepherd. It is his sheep that they oversee. They are the elders who the body looks to for leadership, for guidance, for direction, for correction, for instruction. This is what's at stake here. And this is commanded by Paul, instituted by Christ, and this is consistent throughout the scriptures. Because the idea of elder is nothing new. If you read the Old Testament, we'll get into this more next week, but especially in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, there are elders. The older men in the families, the, the familial leadership in Israel, led families, who led clans, who led tribes. It was the respected men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom who would not take a bribe, who could be impartial, who everyone saw and respected as leaders. This is a little bit foreign to us because we do not have this type of patriarchal culture. But this is built into Jewish DNA. This also fits really well into the Roman context. I love how the Lord brings together these two ideas because at the time, the Romans had a republican form of government where they had representation by qualified leaders. So the idea of a family head And a representative leader from among the people, even though there are Jews and Gentiles now, the system is still consistent. And so this idea of elders presiding and ruling over the people uh, was was nothing new, and it would have been comfortable, and it is God's perfect design for a church. But I think, as Americans, uh, ever since we threw off King George and the monarchy of, of England, we kind of reel a little bit at the idea of rule. We don't like people having authority over us. Ever since the garden, we haven't liked authority. We want to be our own gods, and we're certainly not under a king. So the elder who rules here, as we kind of transition into the idea of rule, uh, one who is set over, one who has authority, one who guides, one who directs, one who who governs, this is where we get the word uh, for church, governance, This is something instituted by God. This is not a king, but it is King Lee. And so if you look at the history of Israel, Israel had three type of leaders. They had prophets, they had priests, and they had kings. And the the prophet's job was to bring the word of the Lord to the people of, of the Lord. The priest's job was to bring the people before the Lord to offer sacrifices and to offer praises, to bring them into the temple and into the Holy of Holies. And the king's job was to organize and direct the people of God. And so when you had faithful prophets, priests, and kings, the nation was faithful. But when you had poor prophets, priests, and kings, the nation was a train wreck. And so in ministry, we have these elements. There is a kingly element where the elders and leaders of the church must organize and must lead. A good king is the one who is first to battle with his sword out front and men following behind him. They must be prophetic in the sense that they speak the words of God to the people. They must be priestly in that they intercede for and bring people before the Lord. But praise God, we're not doing this in our own strength because our savior, the head of our church, is the final prophet, priest, and king. In him, all of the word of God is fulfilled as the final prophet prophesied the one who would come after Moses from Deuteronomy 18. He is the, the final priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, fulfilling Psalm, Psalm 110 and all the book of Hebrews, essentially. The final sacrifice, the one who went into the Holy of Holies. And he is also the heir of the line of David, the king of the tribe of Judah, the one who is fit to rule forever. And so in his stead, while he is away, he has placed kingly men with prophetic gifts and priestly hearts to care for his church, for his people. This is what is going on when we look at the elders who rule. Let's put out of our, out of our minds any modern uh, independent notion of no one's ruling over me, I'm a law unto myself. God has put laws and structures in place for the good of his people. And they will remain until Christ returns. So when we combine these two ideas, the elders and ruling, uh, we get our pastoral model. So here, our pastoral model is one of elder rule. And that the elders are given charge to rule, I mean, it's pretty clear. It's, it's here in the text. And we'll expand on this in just a little bit. Um, but I think Hebrews chapter 13 helps us here. So two verses in Hebrews chapter 13, as he closes up, the writer of Hebrews closes up the book He gives instructions for the members and how they are to view the leaders of their church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse seven and verse 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, spoke to you the word of God. So notice, the leaders here are those who teach, those who are entrusted with the doctrine of the church. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. They're your example in doctrine and in life, and in practice. If we go on, he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That seems like a disconnected idea. But those who are good leaders, those who are strong in the faith, are rooted in Christ. And if he doesn't change, they won't change when the culture changes. They won't sway back and forth to different winds of doctrine. They are rooted in him. And you follow them as long as they follow Christ. Also verse 17 of the same chapter. A little bit stronger here as the letter closes. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. So first off, again, this, this kind of pushes against our human nature. Wait a second. I don't want to submit to or obey anyone. I don't like that idea. But you have never considered what it means that I am responsible for watching over your soul. That Brett is responsible for watching over your soul. That Jesse is responsible for watching over your soul. And every man who understands the weight of his calling knows that this next line applies to him. As those who will have to give an account. You think the pressure is big on you that I have to obey and submit to who God has put over me? Imagine walking around with the weight of saying, I'm going to answer to the Lord. I will stand before Christ one day. As James says, not many of you should become teachers. Because you're going to be held to a higher standard, I'm going to have to answer for every foolish word I have said in the pulpit. There are many, and every bad piece of counsel or imp- or, or uh, hasty decision I've ever made. Hopefully, there are not many. Um, there will be more. That is not a light weight. We have to give an account, and so there is there is accountability when people walk into churches. So, what's your accountability? My first answer is I have to answer to the Lord one day. So uh, I want to love you well, but I'm not scared of you. I am scared of him. And I don't want to be an unjust and unfaithful servant. And as we do this, as ones we have to give an account, not with this weight, this, this uh, drudgery, but let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. There is so much within this one verse. And so this goes hand in hand. The obedience, the submission, those who labor and will give an account to the Lord and doing it out of joy. Because I think you know, if you have a joyful leader, the people will be joyful. If you have a confident leader or leaders, the people will be confident. But when you have a miserable leader, you will have a miserable church. When you have a leader who lacks confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are gonna have a shallow and weak church. And so this is a high call. And so when we think about being elder ruled, we have to put these ideas together. Because we have to give an account, because we are charged with the doctrine and the oversight of the church, We are charged with this ruling. We have been set over the local church. Um, And so just to kind of help you understand, to compare and contrast a little bit, um, most of the divisions in uh, ecclesiastical structure or church polity or church governance, any of those synonyms, come from this verse. Uh, and so much of what we, the differences we see among Protestant churches, and we're not going to get into Roman Catholic churches who take this to the nth degree, The especially they use to promote a, a, a papacy. Like, we're not even going there. But I just want to give you some, some different, um, just a, a few different options. Because your, your polity model has many implications for how the church functions. And really, they stem from how you interpret this, this verse. So the elder rule would fall under a localized um, Presbyterian form of government, lowercase P. In that, the presbyteroi, the 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 elders, plural, are the ones who are responsible for the church. And so, even though we don't have a capital P Presbyterian hierarchy, we're only talking about local church here. Um, the elders are responsible for it. So the elders set the tone. The elders stand out out front. But as good elders, we Desire to bring everyone along in that. Um, And, you know, going on uh, within that, you can have many different distinctions. You could have, uh, we would have a pastoral plurality, meaning that every elder is an overseer and a a pastor. We don't make a distinction. Uh, There are many within Baptist and Presbyterian circles who would make a distinction that this elder teaches, this elder does not. So you've got um, teaching and, and, and ruling elders. Um, we wouldn't see that distinction because Paul speaks of one body here. And then earlier in chapter 3, they all must be able to teach. But, again, I'm not going to get bogged down in the weeds with this. There's a lot of nuance and a lot of freedom within orthodoxy. This is all still orthodoxy. Um, Kind of one step beyond that, there is elder-led. So you might have a plurality of elders, and the elders are out front. uh, But in a more congregational uh, sort of polity, the elders make suggestions... But the final authority lies with a vote from the, the, uh, the body members. And so um, that's a more congregational idea. The, uh, this one and the next one are more congregational. So, uh, what we see often in uh, our days is kind of a, a committee led church. This is more kind of Methodist and some Baptist circles um, where you've got a, a solo, pa- solo pastor. Uh, but he doesn't really have any authority. He's not really ruling. He has to answer to a series of uh, committees. And as soon as you find a committee in the Bible, please let me know. Um, kind of close behind this uh, is the, the solo pastor model. Um, some by default, they just don't have other qualified men to have a plurality, and some by, by design. This is probably what the average church is. And I mean, meaning you could have a church of 10 people. Sanford, downtown Sanford, is probably about 60 churches. And most of them are solo pastor models, a guy who gets a dream and says, God wants me to be a pastor, and so I'm going to rent a shop in a storefront. Um, that's, that is most common, but sadly, those churches are going to rise and fall on one man and one, and one personality. Um, so you've got the kind of Presbyterian system, the, congres- the uh, congregational system, and then you've got the, the Episcopal system. Uh, so this is still within Protestantism, uh, it's one step out of Rome, uh, but there is a, a bishop, they would see the, the overseer and the elder as two separate offices. So you'd have elders over the deacons, sometimes elders are called priests, uh, and a bishop over them. And so uh, this all coming out of one verse. And so how do you interpret those who rule well and what's the, what is the uh, difference between those who labor in preaching and teaching? We'll get into that a little bit more. Um, But what is most important for us uh, here, and I'm not going to answer for everyone else, and we could talk for hours on all the little differences and and all the denominations and all that, but what I want you to see here is that we look at the words of Paul in both Timothy and Titus. I want you to turn to Titus now, and we see that every elder must be able to rule and must be able to teach, even if, we'll get there later, they have different teaching gifts, Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. So if you're in your Bible, in 1 Timothy, turn two books to the right. 2 Timothy and then Titus. Notice here where Paul brings all these ideas together. Verse 5, Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. This is God's design for the local church. How do we have order in the local church? and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is God's design for order in the local church. Now he begins to describe who an elder should be, and this, is, this parallels First Timothy chapter 3. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordinate, for an overseer, see here, same breath, same idea. He's not creating two offices. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So the elder is an overseer and a teacher. He rules and he teaches, that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine also to rebuke those who contradict it. I don't see any biblical, and this is important. And we'll get there in the conclusion, but I don't see any biblical warrant for a man called elder who cannot teach and correct according to sound doctrine, who does not have a ministry of the word. It is contrary to the scriptures. I really thought about getting into all this, but I'm, I'm not going to. But, but that's why here our elders are pastors, um, and we don't draw a distinction there. And we will look at the distinction uh, in our roles in just a moment. So, back in 1 Timothy, uh, if I haven't fully bored you yet, what I want you to get from all this, I care less about your particular structure, but what is most important is that you do this well, and you serve well because you are serving Christ, because you are caring for his sheep, and there are faithful men in the Anglican church, and faithful men in the Presbyterian church, and there might even be a few faithful Methodists. I I don't know. I, I think there are, um, but we do that because we care for the sheep that Christ has entrusted us with, because we get that his blood covers every one of you who are in Christ, and that we will have to stand before him one day and he, when he says, what did you do with mine who I bought? That is why we are to do it well, not because you thank us or appreciate us, and we appreciate that we're appreciated. But those who do this well, they are worthy of double honor. If you can't do it well, don't do it. So when you say those who do it well, this is not entitlement. There have been men in this church who are no longer in this church, and godly men, but they really wanted the title. They were petitioning themselves for elder when no one else was. They thought that if I have the title... Then, you know, then I'll be recognized. Then I'll do the role of an elder. You know what we're looking for in potential elders? Men who are elders already. Men who are above reproach. Men who can teach. Men who lead their own homes. Men who are hospitable. Men who love their their families well and and manage their homes and who give counsel and sound doctrine. Not men who want the, the, the title so that they can feel appreciated. This, your title does not grant automatic respect or financial provision. Every Christian should execute excellence in their vocation. But how much more for those whose vocation and those whose expectation is Christ's under-shepherds? We are not called to be scholars. We're not called to be executives. We're not called to be entrepreneurs. We are called to be stewards of Christ's resources. We're, we're called to steward the doctrine and finance of the church. We are called to protect the sheep and organize their gatherings. These men, who do it well, they're to be honored in the assembly. Here's what Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter five. Again, if you're not familiar with your Bible, two books to the left. You can get your wrist work out here. First Thessalonians chapter 5, 12 and 13. We ask you brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Those who do this well, they are to receive honor, and in fact, double honor. High respect. Many would argue compensation is implied here. So the discussion of remuneration or um, uh, payment for services for pastors is a good discussion, but I think the, the context is clear. This, this honor here, certainly, those who rule well are worthy of respect. But also, if we look at the context, what have we been looking at the last two sections? Those widows who are truly widows are to be honored. What is that honor? They are to be enrolled into the finances of the church so that they are, are cared for. Paul is drawing on the same idea here. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So there is a provision for widows, and there is an extra provision for the elders who rule well. And there is an expectation that there will be men in the church that that labor as their vocation, and that the church should support them in this, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So this means most of all. So most of all, those whose job those whose primary focus in their life is to labor in preaching and teaching. And so while Jesse or Brett or any elder who serves here must be able to preach and teach, they don't have the primary focus of preaching and teaching as I do. And this is common in most churches with plurality. Um, And so there may come a day, and I hope there does, where we're able to have another man who could labor vocationally in preaching and, and, and teaching. But for now, there is a a particular designation for that man. Um, And so I don't think we need to create a separate office for this. We all have the same authority. We hold the same office, but we have differing responsibility. And so my responsibility is greater than the other men, um, but I don't have a greater authority than the other men. I still submit to them, and I still must labor alongside them. And, and I think this is a good biblical model because anytime you have hierarchy, there becomes potentiality, there becomes, there becomes jockeying. And so when people ask, I always say, they, are, are you the pastor? That's how everyone asks the, phrases that question. I always say, I'm one of the pastors. And because people would always ask what that, 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 that means, uh, Jesse's suggestion about a year or two ago uh, was that you, you do function as a senior pastor. So that's going to be your role. I am one of the, the, the pastors, but I am senior in the sense that I am the first among equals. So I'm going to have the most time investment. I'm going to have the uh, most training and the, 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 the most responsibility throughout the week and throughout the, the, the year. Um, and I lead in terms of vision and, uh, and uh, direction, but I never do it apart from my brothers because we are equal. And so we are equal in authority, yet distinct in responsibility. And and I'm not saying this to say that every other way is wrong. I just want you to know this is how we function. So when we sit down, it's not because Tim has an idea, we just automatically do it. I want them to challenge the idea. I want them to ask questions. And and, and just because I, I, I don't like something doesn't mean that we won't do it. But because we are all equal in authority, we will not move forward unless we are in unison. And if my brothers are not ready to do an idea that I have, then I wait until they are. Because they are my brothers, and we, we, we move as one. We move as a, a council. So I just want to kind of clarify that before we get into the preaching and teaching. So even though there is a distinction in functionality, we don't make a distinction in formality. So because there's a function of one who labors in preaching and teaching doesn't mean that there is a a different form or a different office particularly for that. So I want to transition into preaching and teaching. This is the primary duty of the elders. We saw this last time in Acts chapter six. Somebody's excited. Um, I'm really excited to get back to Acts chapter six too. Thank you. Acts chapter, yeah, all right. Acts (laughs) chapter, maybe it was just me, I don't know. I don't like being called out in a sermon either. That's okay. We, we, we're we, we, we love kids here. I, I've told you this story before. When I got here, there was not a child to be found, so I will never complain about a crying child. And I tell people I would rather hear children than, than crickets, so cry away. I can preach through it. Hopefully you can pay attention. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We see this as the early distinction between elder and deacon. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, deacons here, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That is the elder's primary concern. That is the primary ministry of the leaders of the church. The word of God and prayer that goes along with it. As well as 2 Timothy, book to your right, chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. As we get into the nuance of preaching and and, and teaching here, look how Paul describes preaching in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll get there when we get into 2 Timothy. Paul says again to Timothy, I charge you another order, a command, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing uh, and his kingdom, preach the word, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke. Notice everything that is inherent within preaching. Reproving, rebuking, exhortation with complete patience and teaching. Teaching is assumed within preaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Inherent within preaching is evangelism, the work of the gospel. And first, let's look at preaching here. It is heralding the good news. It is presenting before the people of God, the excellencies of our Savior, the person and work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. That is proclamation. Heralding, we've talked about this before, but you have to get the imagery. The herald is the one who went before the king. The king wins in a battle. And while the king is parading back in victory, the herald runs ahead. And he says, Saul has slayed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Everyone, come out of your home. Our king is here. He's victorious. That is preaching. That is heralding. Because we are proclaiming the victories of our king. We have seen that so many times in Acts. And we will see it many more times. When given an opportunity, it is not an exposition or an explanation. It is a proclamation. The proclamation, explanation, and application of the word is the heartbeat of the body of Christ. It sets the tone for everything else, her doctrine and practice. So along with that preaching, there must be teaching as well. And so teaching, these are two different words in the Greek. One means, one means heralding, um, the other is instruction. So along with the preaching ministry and in preaching, there is explaining and unveiling and applying the whole counsel of God. And so there is proclamation, thus saith the Lord... And there is exclamation, here's what that means, and here's what it means for you. Both, uh, while are necessary, they're related, and they they overlap, but they are distinct. So the one who wields the sword spars with the sheep, so that iron sharpens iron. But he's also the one who wields off invaders. And that sword is double-edged, that it pierces heart. And so we can we can spar over 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 teaching. But as John Calvin said, the shepherd has two voices, one for the sheep and one for the wolves. And that sword, that proclamation, is what stirs the sheep to encouragement and makes the wolves tremble in fear. And then what we proclaim, we then explain in our teaching. Helpful? Um And I would say, sadly, there is not as much preaching going on as you would think. Because you can attend many churches who have good lessons, um, biblical information, um, who will have solid theology, but no mention of the work of Christ, no mention of forgiveness of sins. And that is not preaching because it lacks power and it lacks passion. The only power we have Romans 1.16 is the gospel. And so while I love John Calvin for so many things, and this is one of the few areas I disagree with him, um, he thinks here that there is no difference between preaching and teaching. They're just synonymous. Um, I favor Martin Lloyd-Jones who says, if you have to ask the difference between preaching and teaching, you have never heard preaching. And you may want to think about that. You may not get that until later. But preaching is what we heard in Acts 5. Peter didn't get up and give a systematic theology explanation of why they were preaching in the name of Christ. They told them, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who you killed, son of our father Abraham, our God raised him from the dead. And he raised him from the dead so there'd be forgiveness of sins for Israel. And if you repent and believe, your sins can be forgiven too. Every opportunity they get, that's what the apostles do. Because if we're not preaching Christ, we're not preaching. I have been in churches who we would agree with top to bottom and say, "Man, that sermon could have been taught in a synagogue." That sermon could have been that, that sermon could be a Sunday school class. There is no distinction. There is 100 percent a distinction between heralding and instructing. Both are good, both are helpful. But one has a purpose of proclaiming the victorious work of our savior and the other has the work of explaining what that means for us so as we move on every elder must be able to teach and here every elder will preach um, at least once a year but it is natural as we're talking about those who labor in preaching and teaching for some to have stronger gifts than others and that's okay you know, among our elders, we're, they're going to lead where they are strongest. If the Lord has given me a teaching gift, that's where I will lead primarily. But if the Lord's given another brother an administrative gift, or a counseling gift, or a uh, you, you, you name it, we should lean into where the Lord has wired our co-laborers. Um, But nevertheless, those who labor in preaching and teaching should receive a living from the church in this way, if at all possible. Um, So I know many pastors who are bivocational, and I, I meet with pastors on a regular basis. And the guys who have to, bivocational meaning they have to work another job so that they can be in ministry. It is hard to go to work, to care for your family, and to preach, and to teach, and to study, and to try to oversee And if their churches aren't able to support them, it's difficult. Um, I would encourage every church, not just this one, every church, to find a man who cares for them well and care for him well. I'm more and more convinced that having men devoted to, their lives devoted to the church, is going to contribute to the health of the church. And I'm thankful that this church has been generous. Because when I got here, it was lean, lean. Some of you who've been here for more than a, than a year know if you've been here for more than, than, than uh, five years, I would have made more at, at McDonald's, but I would never change a thing. And praise God that I am able to do this, and I do not take it lightly. My wife will tell you, she's like, are we going to eat dinner yet? Like, no, not until I finish my sermon. Are you going to come to bed? Uh, no, not until I, I get this right. I do not take lightly the calling that the Lord has put on me. And sometimes if I don't eat it, if I don't sleep, that is okay as long as I preach. Um, so this idea of caring for men who are entrusted with the word of god is an old testament and a new testament idea second uh, second chronicles 31 verse 14 or verse verse 4 if you can't get there quickly it'll be on the screen quickly but i want you to see that this provision was uh was set up among the priests remember there's priests prophets and kings Second Chronicles one four and he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and Levites, that they may give themselves to the law of the Lord. This is nothing new. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, same idea. New Testament idea. Uh, Paul expands on this, but I love the, the, the connection here on what's actually going on when the people in the church support those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse six, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, that's true on its face, but let's see where he goes from here. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So he's talking about the church in Galatia and in every church who gives unto the ministry of the word and the work of the church. If you sow into spiritual things, you will reap spiritual things. This is what he says. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reach corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from his spirit reap eternal life. He's still talking about sharing with those who preach the word. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Um, So, all of this kind of leads to Paul's illustration in verse 18. He gives us two illustrations here uh, back in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So kind of leading up to what's going on, why this is important, and now he illustrates it. And again, he, he's not, even Paul's not drawing from his own wisdom. He gives two biblical commands. And it's interesting when he says, for the scripture says, he uses one Old Testament and one New Testament citation. This is always our authority for the church and for our lives. So the first one, for you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, is from Deuteronomy 5. He argues from the lesser to the greater, and we'll get there in a moment. But if you're going to put an ox to work, you're going to let him eat. How much more for a minister of the word of God? And the next one, where he says the laborer deserves his wages, he's quoting Jesus. Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The context... I think the context is interesting is because when Jesus sends out his disciples two by two and he sends them into the surrounding villages and he says, go, teach the people in the town, but whatever home you, you enter, stay there. Stay in that home. Don't go from house to house. Eat whatever they give you and be thankful for a laborer deserves his wages. Notice the, the, the precedent is set there. If you are called to minister, you stay in that house as long as you are welcome. You minister there. And those who you minister to out of gratitude will care for your your needs. That is a beautiful picture of the local church. And Christ instituted it when he sent his, his disciples out. The parallels apply directly to the commitment of an elder who teaches and the grateful response and responsibility of those he ministers to. But notice, it is not the pastor who demands this for himself. It is not the pastor who deems himself entitled to this honor. It is the church's responsibility. It is the church's command, it is the church's privilege to honor their older brother in the faith who labors among them. So I wanna look at Paul's analogy here of muzzling the ox, because I think it's helpful. Um, Paul himself did not take an income from ministry, but he goes to great lengths to describe how important it is, and so I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter nine. He uses this this same citation in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We looked at the latter half of this chapter in intercessory prayer earlier. Um, We're going to look at the beginning part of this chapter, beginning in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat or drink? And do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? He's talking about him and Barnabas here as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Right here, um, celibate priest is completely thrown out the window. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He's saying Barnabas and I are working, but do we not have the right to stop working because we're ministering to you? But now Paul uses a series of analogies here by way of illustration. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Like, how silly is that? If I'm planting grapes, I'm eating grapes. You wouldn't expect someone who's planting a vineyard not to eat their own grapes. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads on the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? That's the crux of the whole argument. Is God really, is this theory really about oxen? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? That's the principle that Paul is laying out here, but he goes on. Notice his main concern. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That is Paul's main concern. That is his main priority. The primacy of Paul's ministry is I want you to see Christ. I want you to hear the gospel. And if it means I have to work and preach the gospel, I will do that because the gospel is most important. But I don't want the rest of my brothers to have to do that. I will do that. I will sacrifice myself for that. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple serve, uh, temple service, get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar, a share in sacrificial offering in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So maybe none of you disagree with this, but I want you to know where this, this, this comes from. And the simple idea is if you wouldn't starve a dumb ox, would you starve a dumb pastor? <laughs> this is humbling to pastors who... <laughs> This is humbling for pastors who think too highly of themselves. I think some of the tailored suit and preachers and sneaker guys should uh, pay attention to this. Ministry done right is not glamorous. It is hard and dirty work. It is a lot more like a team of oxen than it is a day at the office. And the pastors I like, the guys who I want to hear from are the guys with dirt under their fingernails. The guys who have put in a week's labor, and they have poured themselves out for the sake of the gospel. Because sometimes ministry stinks. Sometimes it smells like and feels like you're walking behind an ox, and you're just moving through with no recognition. I don't feel that here, but I know many guys who do. It is hard for many men in many places. But he doesn't labor out of compulsion. He doesn't labor with a heavy yoke but he labors out of dutiful affection to his savior because he has been purchased with his blood and his congregation has been purchased with his blood. And those are his brothers. Those are his sisters. And so, if I am the ox who has to tread the grain uh, for the sake of Christ, so be it. He chose the right stubborn ox, uh, the right stubborn animal to keep it going. And it's funny as I read this, it just brought to mind how often Jesse would use the, the analogy of, I gotta, I, I, I gotta pull the, the reins back on you because you just wanna keep charging forward. Uh, and that's why you need a plurality of elders. And now we gotta pull the reins back on him a little bit. <laughs> we wanna be driven, but we don't drive ourselves to destruction. So, wrapping this up, you know, as we conclude here, I say all this to say this is why pastoral plurality is important. You can tread a lot more grain with a team of oxen than you can with one, no matter how strong and stubborn he is. When one is hurt, one is tired, the other can continue laboring and pull up the slack. And if you have this, the guys I know who labor with brothers, who labor in unity, it brings joy to ministry that the writer of Hebrews talked about. It brings longevity to ministry. But when your elders cannot or do not yield the sword, they turn into a team of strategists who critique the game without ever playing an inning. I've also seen this too. When you have a ruling elder who does not proclaim the word, not saying every time, but he easily can become a bureaucrat. I've seen this too. He analyzes the battle from the safety of his office, but with no blood on his hands, no skin in the game. What Paul's mentioning here, these elders have skin in the game. But when you have a few faithful men, they can stand like the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. When the Persian army comes rolling in, set on destroying the people of God. A few bold men holding their swords and holding their their ground can fight off the mightiest army in the world. Why? Because they don't fight in their own strength. As Paul says at the end of Colossians 1, I labor in all his strength as Christ strengthens me. And they are filled with the Spirit because they know the one who called them will complete their work. And so I'm convinced with Paul That the people of God are safe and healthy and grateful when their elders are soldiers banded together as brothers. And so when we give tithes and offerings out of the gratefulness of the abundance that the Lord's given us, he's given us so many things on this earth, but we don't sow with earthly reward in mind. We sow with spiritual reward in mind. And so when we in this congregation myself included, when I tithe, when we tithe, we do it so that the ministry of God is continued in this place. For the sake of the name of Christ, and I am grateful to be honored in that way. I would rather There is nothing I would rather do than what I do here. And I love you guys, and I love that you love me, but don't do it for me. Do it for the Lord. So before we go to the communion table, I would be remiss if I did not Exercise my duty to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Since we're going to approach the Lord's table in a moment, I want you to know who this Lord is. He is the image of the invisible God, He is before all things, He is over all things, He has created all things. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, is God eternal. Equal in glory and honor with the Father. Equal in purpose with the Father and the Spirit. He walked on this earth perfectly. Hated and despised by wicked men. So that he might be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He kept the law perfectly. But was crucified under unjust laws by unjust men. He was sent to the cross that he may be silenced, but the power of the living God rose him from the grave so we would never be silenced again. That through his resurrection in life, we would have life and life everlasting. And through his ascension and reigning on high, we would have power here on earth to proclaim his excellencies, that his church would have authority under his headship. That his people would go forth under his name, creating disciples and baptizing them of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And telling them of the good news that Jesus Christ has made peace by the blood of the cross. That in him there is restoration, there is reconciliation, there is propitiation, there is redemption. There is security, there is assurance, there is hope there's adoption, there's family, there's inheritance, there's love, there's joy, there's peace, there's patience, kindness, and none of that can be found anywhere else but in Christ Jesus. This is who we are, saints. This is what the church is called to do. This is why there are elders and pastors. And it is not just my job. Everyone who is in Christ can say what I just said. Because it's true for you. It's true, period. It's what the scriptures say. Take heart, saints. But I would also be remiss if I didn't warn those who are here who, trust, who are trusting in themselves and their own sin more than Christ. If you are here this morning and you refuse to repent of your unrighteousness, you are dead where you stand. Turn to him, and don't you dare approach this family table in an unworthy manner. Don't you dare bring condemnation onto your head. Don't you dare take the meal of Christ and turn it into something that is common and profane. Don't you dare steal the food from the sheep. As pastors, it is our job to warn off the goats and to feed the sheep the nourishing spiritual sustenance of their Savior, don't you dare think you can approach this table of fellowship in your own merit. You should quake in fear where you sit if you even consider getting up apart from Jesus Christ. Because there is one who will not look lightly on profaning his son's name and will send you to hell for eternity Because if you are a God unto yourself, you will stand against the true and living God. This table is a family table. But saints, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this is for you. This wonderful meal is yours. Christ purchased it with his blood to be applied to you. His perfect life his obedience unto death, his resurrection unto life to give you redemption and everlasting peace. If you are in Christ, we welcome you to this table. Let's pray and prepare our minds and hearts. Lord, may you minister to us in the silence. May the still, small voice of the shepherd comfort the sheep. May your spirit bind up the broken, heal the hurting, comfort the afflicted. May they find their comfort in their Savior. Lord, may you remove any shadow of doubt, any questioning. Of a true saint in this room, I know so many struggle because they feel like they are not faithful. They cry out like that baby because of all the sins that they have committed, because they know the wretchedness of their own heart. And that is what brings me joy as a pastor, because that is what turns us to our Savior. We praise you that it is not our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Christ through which we approach this table. We praise you that it's not our goodness, but your goodness that reconciles us to you. We praise you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. May you minister to your people at this time. May you turn the hearts of anyone in here trusting in themselves. Anyone in here going through the motions or thinking that, Christianity is something they can turn on or turn off or check out of when they leave this room. If you are in Christ, you are, it, you are his forever. And if you are in Christ, we welcome you as brother or sister at this table. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.